This episode uh, of the podcast from Research to Reality, I have extreme pleasure uh, to interview Amit Sharma. Hello, Amit. Uh, the yeah. guy, the person who started from uh, silicon design and went to managing all kinds of projects from software, firmware to hardware and anything in between. Uh, but you started uh, in 80s in Berkeley working on logic synthesis. Can That's you right. tell us about your start? Yeah, I have both my uh, undergraduate degree and graduate degree from Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, started at HP after my undergraduate, then went back for my graduate degree. Worked with uh, some of the best professors, faculty in the world at that time. They were uh, not just uh, leading their field, but creating new fields. Uh, my advisor, Professor Hodges, uh, created the whole switch capacitor filter mm -hmm. area. Uh, and I got a chance to work with Sanjivani, uh, Professor Sanjivani and uh, Newton on logic synthesis. That was a project. And uh, it really was an incredible experience, uh, Dihan, in terms of how do you organize R&D, create a galvanizing project. And back then, I don't know if you heard of Mist and Espresso. Uh, and then uh, bring in cross-discipline people with different ideas from different parts of the world, uh, and uh, the collaborative, open environment that you then create, I would not have thought that that's how you do deep R&D. Mm -hmm. I always thought, you know, you kind of go in a corner. But that Berkeley model that I learned about uh, collaboration and make it as open, as inviting to as many people mm -hmm. as possible, I, different ideas it's an incredible model, and I think we saw that with the machine here in the last few years. Mm. So what did uh, you do around logic synthesis? What were some so, of your So very specifically, uh, once you have optimized logic into multi-layer, multi-level logic, mm -hmm. uh, you have a graph. And now the challenge that I worked on was to map it into a technology, into standard cell, uh, standard cells that we, libraries, for example, we had in HP. Uh, that problem of co graph coverage of mapping standard cell library to a graph of logic is an NP-complete problem. And uh, believe it or not, back then I used uh, simulated annealing to, uh, mm -hmm. to provide that uh, optimal uh, implementation. And I used some techniques that uh, we are talking about even now, uh, such as uh, tunneling or what I call back then allowing illegal states mm -hmm. uh, so you could actually uh, hop across uh, barriers. Mm -hmm. um, and then you took all that experience once you moved to HP and you applied it to laser jets and other technologies? That's right. That was an incredible privilege uh, right, that uh, in my early years at HP, uh, I was asked to work with the laser jet division mm -hmm. and uh, designing a VLSI chip for the first laser jet that HP, uh, HP built. Uh, it was an incredible story, as you can imagine. The, the sales went through the roof. We were a test and measurement company. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we were shipping hundreds and thousands of these per month. And so uh, uh, the Boise LaserJet division, probably the most successful division in the history of HP, prototypical on how you run a division within HP in terms of the culture, in terms of their success. Uh, and uh, I really learned from them in terms of how do you get to volume and quality uh, you know, at, at that kind of volume. So how do you get to quality? Mm -hmm. You have to design it in. You have to take every issue, you have to take it to root cause uh, and follow through and, and really very good process, process control and process checks. Mm -hmm. The other key area that I think is very relevant is how do you solve 
problems like cost, getting to a lower cost, we wanted to get to a, a personal printer, mm -hmm. through engineering and through innovation. It's not just about supply chain optimization, uh, even at those volumes. Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to do that through integration. We built the first system on a chip uh, in the industry. We went to Intel, we got the i960 core, we took all the logic on the board, put it all together into one chip, and it was one of the first systems on the chip in the entire industry to get the cost up. Uh, to get the cost of the shielding to reduce the EMI uh, down, we uh, designed analog circuits like uh, modulating phase lock loops and uh, programmable I.O. Uh, and so there are ways to get costs down that do not require uh, just supply chain up mm -hmm. through engineering, through R&D. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really an incredible uh, Compression was another area, data compression. You know, we went to HP Labs, and we were able to get uh, uh, technology and IP mm -hmm. uh, transfer. In, and, uh, and really, I think that's a model that we need to think about as we go into the future. And that wasn't the only uh, breakthrough technology you've done. Uh, moving from there, you went to implement x86, eight socket-based uh, right. machines. Right. Can so, you tell us about it? Yeah. So here, this was almost 13. 14 years into my career at HP, and uh, I was managing a large team with the LaserJet, and I just decided I've been in a component side of a system company. And at that time, we were just starting our x86 server uh, BU, and uh, I decided to join that BU to get in the system side of the business. Uh, and the challenge was very different. It was an OEM-based model, uh, third-party chips, I.O. cards, boards designed by third parties, somebody else's operating system. So the real challenge was they thought of the server as a PC basically turned on its side, mm -hmm. but how do you get that enterprise quality? And that's where a lot of my learnings from the LaserJet division and from the VLSI side I was able to bring. Uh, like for example, you know, using temperature testing, uh, schmooing voltages uh, and frequency to really find those corner cases. Uh, brought and, and using uh, error checking and correction techniques, uh, I was able to bring all of that into the x86 space. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we had tremendous success. We built the industry's first eight socket x86 system, uh, the first six socket, uh, the first system to integrate a RAID controller on the motherboard. Mm -hmm. uh, so achieved a lot of firsts in that x86 uh, environment. But that hasn't stopped you to go higher and higher. So you move from HPPA to HPA Tanium-based systems? Right. From then, uh, after the merger uh, with Compaq, I moved to BCS, managing a PMO uh, to uh, really transition from HPPA to Itanium. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the challenge there was complexity, right? I mean, we're our own operating system, our own chipset, uh, our own uh, design of the systems. Mm -hmm. I.O. card, storage solutions, the go-to-market, uh, all of those areas uh, were, uh, how do you manage those across the geographies, across the globe, uh, multidisciplinary, uh, uh, that was a big challenge. And uh, what I learned through that process was the, that the value that the customers not at that point were now seeing had really moved more and more towards this very complex software stack. Mm -hmm. Right, the the middleware, the application layers, the database layers. Uh, that's where the customers were really interacting with the ISVs. We were starting to move more into the background. The ISVs had account control, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, really, you could see the beginning of 
hardware getting more commoditized and uh, value moving to, to software. So you did scalability of printer delivery, then you moved to scalability of x86, then you scaled up in Itanium, and then you finally decided to go into data. You moved on to Snapfish and scaling out. The, That's right. Yeah. So that was to be a continuation of that. Mm -hmm. You know, if if the the value is moving to the to the software side, how do we uh, get closer to uh, to understanding what what the requirements are mm -hmm. there? And I actually embedded myself into the Snapfish team. I sat with their IT department two or three mm -hmm. days a week, uh, middle of the night. I went with them into the data center to debug issues, and uh, the the challenge were just incredible scale there. 150 million active users, uh, hundreds of petabytes of data across three data centers, uh, and in, in tremendous variation in workloads. You know, the holiday season or the night, Halloween night, the people uploading pictures, mm -hmm. which was compared to a normal day, was just orders, several orders of magnitude difference. So, how do you design a storage solution and a platform that can handle that kind of a variance? Uh, that was really our challenge. And what I learned through that process is those engineering fundamentals are still applicable even mm -hmm. at that scale. You know, mm -hmm. process control, uh, checking and testing everything before you deploy it, mm -hmm. having a very known, tested, qualified recipe everywhere, uh, and just, you know, cookie cutter replicating mm -hmm. it. That's really the only way in these massive data centers uh, that you, big data kind of uh, data centers, uh, that you can. Uh, you can get to that kind of quality that you need to get to. And then working with data became contagious. You moved on to work uh, on SAP, large memory systems. Right, right. That was, uh, again, my, I, I was convinced at that point that the way HP was going to continue to add value and survive was to move up and build these fully integrated mm -hmm. appliances, we call them, systems where you had the software, hardware, storage, servers, networking integrated, preloaded with soft software, and basically you deliver it to the customer, you switch it on, uh, and it just uh, mm -hmm. comes on. And uh, we were able to, you know, working with the team in Germany, just incredible people, uh, yep. uh, both on the SAP side and our people there in, in Waldorf. Yep. Uh, we were able to uh, build, uh, it was originally a scale-out analytics mm -hmm. uh, solution. And, uh, you know, uh, in-memory computing for analytics scale-out mm -hmm. works. Right, you can partition the problem. You can separate the data into columns, distribute it, uh, do the aggregates mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in parallel. But uh, trying to do uh, transaction processing on the same data in a distributed environment, it was really impossible in the sense that the, the bottleneck between node-to-node -node communication, you needed memory that was much more resilient for transaction processing. And so uh, we came up with the idea of uh, HANA Hawk, which was really SAP HANA running on a Superdome. Mm -hmm. uh, another incredibly successful, uh, I think it's in the hundreds of millions of revenue for HP now, uh, solution. And it's gotten us into that leadership uh, position. And then you reach barrier again, and that open up your appetite even more. You mentioned in-memory computing. Right, right. And in order to get beyond these barriers, what yes. did you do? I joined the Memristor team. And it was a, one of the best decisions I've made uh, in my career, kind mm -hmm. of a capstone uh, project in some ways almost. Uh, because that really was obvious to me working in, in these areas, you know, with Snapfish and SAP, mm -hmm. that uh, MDC type approach, you know, memory driven memory computing, driven computing uh, based on a memristor like non volatile memory 
is where we had to go, mm -hmm. uh, where the industry had to go. And uh, the memristor of work that HP Labs and Stan Williams and team had done was it was it was another privilege, to mm -hmm. be honest, to be able to help and contribute to that team. Uh, the challenges, uh, as you know, there were just uh, enormous. In particular, uh, the entire ecosystem in the semiconductor industry had really changed from my early days. There were very few players left because of consolidation. The culture had really changed, you know, with all the offshoring and things. Uh, it was almost the, the competition was brutal between them. Uh, people were interested in working with us on the R&D side, mm -hmm. but as soon as we started pushing towards product, uh, the disruption to their existing DRAM business, mm -hmm. to their existing flash business, they were really not ready and willing to, no. to take it to that level. And we no longer had IC capabilities in HP to, to sort of do that middle level work ourselves. And unfortunately, all the burden uh, I felt uh, you know, came on that HP Labs team to mm -hmm. not just do the R&D, but then also to do the, Production. the, the transfer. You know, and that should have been a really a semiconductor division type of work. Uh, and so that's, that was a challenge with Memristor. Uh, the approach we're taking now, I think, is a good one, which is to move a little bit more into areas that are not disruptive to the existing businesses, like these AI accelerators and, mm -hmm. and TCAM and, and some of the things we've talked about. Uh, I think that's the right direction. Uh, it's not as demanding on the device right off the bat. Uh, we, and the circuits that surround it, and uh, so, and we've seen some success. Uh, TSMC had worked with us in the early days. They have now memristor in production for embedded uh, use, and uh, we have an opportunity to use it now to develop uh, these accelerators. So, in summary, it's much easier to break technology barriers than economic ones. Absolutely, yeah. exactly. Actually, I ran into a venture capitalist uh, on a plane once, and I was talking about memristor and things. Mm -hmm. He knew a lot about it, and he said, what you really have fundamentally is a business model issue, not a technology issue. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely true, right? Now, if we go back to every single project you had and breaking all these barriers, whenever you do, you require some innovation. That's right. And uh, presumably, you file a lot of patents, and how do you feel about it? What's the importance of patents? Well, this has been interesting uh, for me, Dihan, is all, as I got into management very early in my career, and my teams would file patents, you know, and I felt very good about it, and sometimes they put my name on it. Uh, but it, after I joined the Memristor team, uh, I started to come up with ideas, mm -hmm. and I would run those by the, by the researchers at HP Labs, and they would say, hey, Amit, that's a great idea, write it down. And suddenly they were like my TAs, you know, and yep. uh, I was a student, and it was great. With Gary Gibson, he made me even run some simulations and things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, I've been actually authoring patents uh, in the last uh, couple of years. I've seen some. You've seen them, okay. Uh, so that's been really uh, just incredible. But I really do believe as a company we have to, you know, invent uh, we have to be based on innovation. Mm -hmm. It creates a very positive morale uh, for the company. But patents are different than papers publishing. True. They, can, can you, when you write patent versus write a paper, can you describe the difference? How do you do that? Well, I, I think the papers have to be very rigorous, right? You have to get data, you have to do the simulations, you have to back it up. Uh, writing patents is not as high of a bar, mm -hmm. right? Uh, some of the ideas that uh, we have uh, patented, uh, we haven't yet tested maybe off completely in the lab yet, right? But the bar is different. It's uh, about innovation compared to papers. Exactly, you have to be a little more practical. It's about use, right, yeah. uh, as opposed to... Uh, 
Um, going back to your long history within HP and HP nowadays, can you compare the culture? There used to be HP Way. How much of it is still left? Oh, I think uh, the HP Way was just incredible. It's the foundation of Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. it, I, I, in my yep. view. It's, it's an incredible culture. Uh, it's a culture that's fundamentally about excellence, right? How do you excel in the products that you produce, the innovation that you do, in how you treat each other, uh, how you treat your partners and vendors. Uh, it's really about that. Uh, it's about management principles too, right? Giving people, trusting people, giving them an environment where they can succeed, and uh, really giving them objectives and letting them approach problems the way they want to, as long as they meet the objectives. Just like uh, you did on every single Exactly, occasion. right. I, I Honestly, I feel very privileged and lucky to have seen that culture and then have the chance to live it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just a beautiful culture that I think uh, we, we want to propagate into the future. I think it still applies. I have used it uh, over the years that I've met people who got into HP from acquisitions and things who have no idea what it is. And I actually practice it with them and it works. Yep. I mean, it is just, it's natural to good human beings. Yep. That's how you do things. I always saw it as uh, positive coaching in sports, soccer. Uh -huh. You know, the, the more positive you are and, and right. give players opportunities, the same right. thing. Uh, I, we usually end these podcasts with uh, uh, personal life uh, yeah. and, and, and where you lived and worked. You started from Chicago area and now you moved here. You've been in Berkeley. Yeah. How do you compare these regions? I grew up in Chicago. Yeah. And uh, when I first uh, joined HP, to me, I saw a lot of those Midwestern values within within our company uh, in terms of you know hard work work ethic a lot of uh, focus on family mm -hmm. you know as well community giving back to the community a lot of those values uh, integrity and in how you interact with people uh, uh, I think uh, were part of uh, the culture not just at HP but in in the valley mm -hmm. uh, I think over the years though in terms of how it's different I, I don't know how Chicago has evolved uh, but uh, it has changed here for sure. You know, I feel there's not enough uh, manufacturing jobs, for example, in the Bay Area. So we don't have that socioeconomic uh, diversity. Uh, we all work in Silicon Valley, same socioeconomic sta status. Uh, I don't think that's healthy, right? I think it's, it's, it's important to have a very good mix uh, in terms of the culture. Uh, and I think some of that, you know, with, with because of offshoring and all kinds of things, things have changed. But uh, Silicon Valley has moved in a different direction from what I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, but it has some advantages to living here. The, obviously, right. I mean, it's beautiful weather and all those things. Well, it was great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan.